Hello, and welcome back to Designing for Movement, the UX for Mobility podcast. I'm Dr. Julian Brinkley, your host. In today's world, the way people get around is changing rapidly. From the emergence of ride-sharing and electric vehicles to autonomous vehicles and spacecraft, new technologies are fundamentally changing the way we move around our cities and beyond. I believe to understand existing mobility technologies, as well as to imagine what comes next, we must think beyond our understanding of mobility as purely getting from point A to point B, and must instead think about the experience of mobility itself. In this podcast, we will explore the design of mobility technologies with an emphasis on understanding how best to support the human user. We'll be talking to designers, researchers, engineers, and experts in the field about how they design compelling, accessible, and engaging experiences at some of the world's leading mobility companies. So whether you're an industry professional, an educator, or just someone with a passion for mobility, design, UX, and technology, this podcast is for you. Let's get into it. Welcome to Designing for Movement, the UX for Mobility podcast. Joining us today is Melissa Sefkin, very seasoned and highly experienced UX researcher who's currently an independent consultant working in the automotive sector with prior experience from Waymo. With a stellar career spanning numerous roles in uh, UX, we're excited to have Melissa on the podcast today. Melissa, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you for having me on the podcast, Julian. So I want to jump right into it. You have a really interesting background, which we'll jump into as we talk. But I want to talk a little bit about what you are doing currently. Tell us what you're doing currently and basically how you got to that point in your career. Thank you for the question. And I'm excited about what I'm doing currently. I have, as you mentioned in the introduction, the last Eight years or so of my career has been focused in automotive and around transportation, especially autonomous vehicle development, most recently at Waymo and before that at Nissan. But before that, I've been in other high-tech settings as an anthropologist. So I'm trained with a PhD in cultural anthropology, and I look very much at the sort of social impacts of what's happening with complex technology and especially automation as people sort of get used to having these automated systems in their lives, in their world, often in very mundane manners. So currently, I'm working independently as a consultant with people on projects, especially with still looking at mobility-related autonomy. And I'm also having this opportunity in my career to step back into some more of a pedagogical and educational role, working with universities, some teaching and students and some consulting on the preparation of people finishing with advanced degrees who are going to do things other than be in academia. And it's really interesting the work you've done, just reviewing your background. And I will have some time to really talk about some of the projects that you may be working on currently. But in some of the work that you've done around autonomous vehicles, I really want to explore some of that. You know, for those who follow my work to a degree, they may be aware that I do a lot of work in autonomous systems, you know, really trying to understand how persons with disabilities may use autonomous vehicles, as well as trying to understand how vulnerable and disabled road users may interact with these technologies. So what are some of the types of projects that you have worked on in the autonomous vehicle domain? I love to talk about that. I can talk forever about it. But let me just say that this, to get us started, that maybe I'm outing myself in a way that I shouldn't, but I don't have any particular love of technology in and of itself. I always start from the angle of 
what are people doing with technology and how does it affect their way of being in the world and the meaning they create, the way that they go about living in the world. And technology always shows up, so it's hugely important, but I don't geek out on the specifics of the technology itself. So even with autonomous vehicles, I know I was on the fence for a very long time about whether this was a desirable thing, whether it's a good idea, and I still have some misgivings about, you know, how far we'll get and and where we're headed. But what I came to understand and where my real commitments lie is understanding how having more autonomous vehicles in the world will affect our sense of being in public, being on the roads, being in the streets, moving about for work, for our kin relationships, for entertainment and leisure, for all the ways that we live. We actually spend a lot of time in and around adjacent to roads and streets and cars and transportation, sometimes as users directly, but sometimes as very passive users. So I'm especially interested in what the effects and impacts of autonomy will have in that broader sort of social setting, if you like, and especially in urban settings. People are interacting now with vehicles that are going to be driven not by human drivers, but by, you know, automated drivers, or in some cases, some of both. So I've done projects to look at things like the interaction of pedestrians with an autonomous vehicle for crossing behavior, whether it's at intersections or not, or bicyclists on the road, and what that experience might be like as they're overtaken by a vehicle, which is a very common thing in a city, that the bicyclist is that car would go around and the whole negotiation about, you know, should the car, is it being aggressive? Is it passing at a good distance at a right speed at the right time and all that? And then other drivers that I'm also, as you said about yourself, committed to the concern and interest for the more vulnerable road users, pedestrians and cyclists, But really, I think that the impact of having autonomy on the roads will be strongest, that it will be felt the most in some ways for other drivers, manual drivers, drivers of special vehicles. I'm in the Bay Area. This is in the news a lot about what's happening with emergency first responders and things like that, because the consequences of the autonomous vehicle on the road for other traffic is where you're going to see, you know, congestion or things like that. I've done projects that are very much looking at how people, you know, make sense. Do they identify that they're even interacting with an autonomous agent? What do they think that means? (laughs) Because today, most of the vehicles still have a driver in the seat, although in the Bay Area and in Arizona, there are places where people are getting used to seeing a car without a human driver in the seat. But, you know, how do they conceptualize that? What are the expectations? But mostly what are the behaviors and interactions between these different road users and the vehicle? I have worked a lot with the engineers who develop the behavioral aspects of the system, how it will move and take its actions. So that's really interesting. And I want to kind of unpack some of that. Really, it seems like based on what you just said and just based on my review of some of the work that you've done, you have a decidedly human and people focus. And that tends to be the approach that I really advocate in the design of technology uh, myself. A human or people focus, looking at technology more or less as a tool 
to serve humanity as opposed to being this end all be all, you know, thing that we just kind of bow down to in a real sense. So I think that's really interesting. One of the follow-up questions I have based on what you were just saying. So you talked a lot about how humans interact with conventionally driven vehicles currently. Can you talk a little bit about that in terms of the interaction between pedestrians, cyclists, and human-driven vehicles, what that looks like, and how that can be somewhat juxtaposed against how humans might interact with an autonomous system? The place to start, and this is also, we probably share this as well with the humanist perspective, is to understand that you know, technologies are not all powerful. We don't get a switch on a light bulb and suddenly say the world has changed just because we put our new technology in the world. People will still be shifting from where they are now to whatever continues to evolve. And they're going to be co-producers or co-creators in what this becomes, whether we want them to or not, or whether they recognize that. So that is absolutely where we have to start. So we've done a lot of start studies I've had many, many people to understand aspects of those interactions today. So let's just take a pedestrians. And actually, I'll start with that. One thing is looking at the kind of, I guess I would say, social and environmental factors that are going to shape interactions on the road. So what kind of tempo and rhythm and street structure and social setting are interactions incurring with? And I just you know, invite you to consider... Imagine yourself in a beach town on a lazy Sunday morning compared to in the center of a huge city during rush hour. You know, those are like social constructions of things that are different based on how we've configured our schedules and time and what kinds of activities we'll do in one place compared to another. How people look, how they dress, how they comport themselves are all going to be varied based on the nature of the activity in the environment. So the interactions have a potential to shift as well. And one thing that we might see in a busy crowded area during rush hour, for example, there's a lot of pedestrians in a financial district or something like that, would be that even if people are mostly moving about as individuals, sometimes they might be you know, walking with a workmate or you would even see families, but at rush hour in part of downtown New York City, you're probably not going to see as many families as you would on the weekend leisure time. But if you saw people together, they're probably, you know, workmates or adults that are going about their business. So how they might operate in, as individuals versus a single person is one thing that shifts. Where is their attention? If they're engaged in a conversation, they might be attending to each other more than they are to the traffic. And it might be um, as they arrive at the crosswalk is the moment at which it's like, oh, wait, you know, where are we headed? Can we cross yet? What's going on around us? On the other hand, one of the things that's also been shown in the literature is that the larger the size of the group, of course, then the group that kind of herd effect takes over and the group begins to sort of take predominance in terms of the interaction. So the group may not be a social group. They may have just a bunch of strangers who arrive around the same time, but kind of for the purposes of the crossing, they become sort of, they operate a little bit collectively and they kind of take precedent. So one of the questions about interaction would be sort of priority taking, who has priority, and the different, the way that's dynamic and how it's sort of negotiated in the process based, you know, tab, people aren't 
consciously thinking this way. It's just kind of what we've become used to. There's also a lot of cue giving that happens indirectly. So if I'm arriving at a crosswalk, or let's say I'm going to jaywalk across the street. Jaywalk, of course, we know is not necessarily the best term to use, but it's the one that's been in effect now for 100 years. But if I was going to cross, then my body torque, the direction of it, my speed, all sorts of things that I'm using to move are also communicating to the drivers around me about my intentions or, again, my sort of comportment. So there's a lot of informal cue giving that drivers are able to sort of read and vice versa. Pedestrians can take a lot of cues from the movement of vehicles based on a driver's comportment, even without attending directly to the driver. So do you see the wheels of a car turned, suggesting that the car's arriving and even before, you know, maybe you don't see a blinker. But you notice the, the wheels are sort of turning, it, you know, unconsciously, you're probably taking in this car, you know, is waiting to make a turn. You know, their speed, their stopping behavior. And then the pedestrians could look in the car and get cues from the driver. There's a lot of talk about eye contact. And I think it's not settled how... People will make claims about eye contact being very important. The literature, there's a, a bit of a debate about how literal is it actually eye contact. The term I like to use, based on some work by some lovely Danish students actually years ago in Denmark, they renamed it as mutual recognition and mutual awareness and creation. I'm not looking at your eyeballs. I'm not seeing the whites of your eyes move and that kind of eye contact, but we do kind of like get a sense of each other, like, do you know I'm here? And do I know you're there? And do we know each other have established that each other is there? And our awareness, it may be more like the direction of the head, the gaze, or even other activities as a driver, like leaning forward and engaged at their wheel, or are they distracted as, you know, doing something, turning around. So there's, again, just a whole bunch of cues that people are not necessarily conscious of that are informing those interactions. I've been talking a lot about pedestrians. You would have similar but slightly varied sets of what those communications and cues would be if you talk about bikes or motorcyclists or other drivers. Similar things are going on, but again, there might be slight variations in, in what they would look for. I don't know whether or not you've explored this at all, but it's an area that really interests me and one that I have been looking at. I currently have a student who's exploring this to a degree via interactions between pedestrians and basically cues from autonomous vehicles via external human-machine interfaces. So how can those external human-machine interfaces provide cues for when to move, when not to move, what the vehicle is going to do, so on and so forth? So have you looked at any of that in terms of like, you know, the impact of external human-machine interfaces. And for our listeners, you can really think about that as any type of interaction mechanism that might be to the exterior of the vehicle that might communicate vehicle intent or what the vehicle intends to do in a certain degree. Have you all looked at any of that at all in some of your previous work? Absolutely. In fact, going back many years, I think I've hosted workshops on that the risk of being immodest, I think I was amongst a handful of people that were, should we call it external HMI or EHMI and began to like give it some of that name and stuff. And I've worked, you know, internationally with 
people, you know, in committees on that exact topic. So yes, that's been a very specific area of my interest and focus. And I guess what I would say about that is, so first of all, some of the kinds of solutions that I've explored the most have usually been very simple lighting signal options that would provide a passively consumable, easy to interpret. I mean, it's not rich in information, but once you know what it is, then it's easy to interpret. It's like it would be hard to make be confused about the state of the signal, but some sort of lighting signals that would be useful for a vehicle to communicate things about its own intent. So I have a lot of points of view on what kind of communications are the best ones to pursue or not, and you know what we can expect of that. And so we can go into that more if you like. The one thing that I would say is that I don't feel very convinced that we know yet very much about the real impact or effect of having those signals. I remain very bullish that it will be a good idea for autonomous vehicles and frankly, would be a good idea for our traffic environments overall, that it will be a wonderful addition that will come by way of having autonomy, that we will enrich the kind of information space on the road. And that people at that point say, hey, we should have done this before anyway, even on manual cars. But there's a reason you can't really do it on manual cars in the same kind of way. And so the opportunity comes with autonomous vehicles. But all we know today is based on more artificial experimental setups, because we just don't have autonomous vehicles at scale to know how it sort of settles in to what people do with it. So I don't think we know yet what the ultimate impact will be. But I remain, as I said, very bullish on thinking it will be a net effect of something very positive that could take decades to settle into having a meaningful impact. Just generally is a very interesting topic. And what it makes me think about is just the opportunities for humanizing almost uh, the autonomous vehicle, right? In such a way, and really designing vehicles in such a way to where they communicate intent in a similar way to what humans do, perhaps. So I think it's just generally an interesting topic. I could probably talk about that for like an hour. I could listen to you talk about that probably for an hour. So I want to pivot a little bit, still in the same general wheelhouse, but based on your research, you know, what you've been exposed to, the work that you've done up to this point, what do you think are some of the common misconceptions or fears that pedestrians, cyclists, and people who are driving conventional vehicles, manually driven vehicles, have about autonomous vehicles? And are there any things that we can do, you know, depending on what those perspectives are, are there things that manufacturers might be able to do to maybe improve the perception about autonomous vehicles and maybe comfort with this technology? Can you speak to that a little bit? It'll be partial based on the kinds of things I've encountered or what I've heard. And I'd be curious what you hear and see on that same topic. Two things come to mind. I think that in the most immediate interactional context, the thing that comes up the most, especially for bicyclists, more than anybody, but bicyclists and pedestrians, probably more than other cars, is does it see me? Does it know I'm here? And so this is another opportunity for external HMI, EHMI, to be able to, you know, if there's some sort of signal that illuminates or or activates based on the presence of other people, that even if that's not the intention of the signal, then it will be a secondary cue that allows them to recognize that. So I think that that's one thing that comes up. 
I do believe that as people get more used to them being around, they will gain the confidence that, yes, it does know I'm here. And they will, you know, begin to sort of not have to be reminded. And so I think the story that I often hear related to this and makes sense to me is if you think of navigation systems, you know, it used to be in our cars with navigation systems when you would be going down a route and then you missed your turn or you decide to go a different block and you turn that the navigation system would give you the cue that would say, I'm rerouting just to like reassure you that it knows that the route has changed and that it's going to like catch up to you. It doesn't do that anymore because we know now that our maps reroute. And so it doesn't bother to sort of mention that. So this idea of being, you know, sort of confirming presence of another, of the pedestrian or bicyclist, may be a momentary thing. It might not be something that will persist. The other one is just, I think that a common thing that is heard is, oh, they drive slow. Oh, they're kind of, you know, ho-dunky because they're, you know, obeying all the traffic laws, going to the speed limit, coming to full complete stops <laughs> at intersection. I should also say that when I think of the cars that I'm speaking mostly of, the levels are very imperfect just to, for ease of conversation, a level for a vehicle that's capable of driving completely on its own within a geofenced area. And I'm thinking of that more than advanced ADAS system, level two, level three, where there really is a driver who's doing most of the action, even if sometimes it's operating more autonomously. So when I talk about this, I'm mostly talking about the level four type vehicle. So those kinds of people's sense of like, it's not fitting into the rhythms of the other traffic around it is somewhere that I, ironically, for cultural anthropologists, I'm a little bit more on the side of this is our opportunity to do some social engineering and actually pull all of the traffic back into a less aggressive, less assertive, less pushing at the limits of nudging forward into crosswalks, going above the speed limit, you know, having full stops and all that, because that doesn't work for everybody. It works for a lot of people. That's why those patterns are really familiar to us and expected. But it makes for some troublesome roads. And so I think that on that front, it is an interactional experience that people, they're not sure they can trust it because they do think it's going to behave just a little bit differently. And they do in those kinds of ways. But that's one that I don't know that we should be so quick to try to adapt. That is really interesting. And what that makes me think about is, so I actually took a couple of my students out to uh, Phoenix, Arizona about two years ago to try the Waymo One service and uh, vehicle. And I loved it. I thought it was awesome. But the thing that I came away from that experience with, I was actually surprised when you mentioned that, you know, some people may remark about, you know, it driving slow or et cetera. I was actually struck by I don't want to call it aggressive. That's not an accurate description of it. It wasn't really aggressive, but it was more assertive in terms of how it actually functioned really than what I was actually prepared for. And I didn't know if that was really an intentional design choice, if that was just by happenstance. Obviously, we had a really small sample. We only rode in it maybe 10 times, but really I was struck by how it basically operated. And so what that makes me think about is when you are doing the type of work that have led and are involved with, I tend to be somewhat of a research methods nerd, you know, trying to figure out, you know, how are we exploring some of these topics? 
from really a research methods or study design type approach to basically explore some of these problems. What are you doing in that regard? Because again, if I look at a lot of the research that has been published in auto UI or you know related venues, there are a lot of really interesting methods, whether or not we're talking about the ghost driver protocol or RADs or some of these other methods that people are using really to explore this topic. So really, what type of methods are you using to really do your work and to really answer some of these questions? It's a great question. And I don't consider myself an expert methodologist in that sense. I, you know, I like exploring them and I love working with people that have expertise in methods other than what I, my own area are. Again, it's just a handful of things. You know, I, of course, as you might not be surprised as a trained as cultural anthropologist, of course, my own original research, much more heavily ethnographically shaped. And you probably hear that in my comments, that I think sort of reality of people, it takes time to really settle into understanding how people are adjusting to and adapting behaviors and all. So I do favor more field methods where we can get kind of a realistic take on how people are behaving and perceiving things. So it could be a lot of ride-alongs where we would record driver's experience, try to get people sort of adopting from some more cognitive studies or psychological studies, more of a kind of think aloud protocols to get people to feel free to just narrate and not be constrained by answering specific questions, but just, you know, how does it feel? What are they experiencing? What comes to mind? What are they thinking about? So we can pair those. You know, I could be an observer while somebody is driving and sort of, I may not engage them very much, but just let them do think aloud. But I've also done a lot more sort of instrumental testing styles where we've had, again, maybe with ride-alongs, but to get people to kind of score and itemize certain behavioral effects that they're noticing and to be able to look at, for example, severity ratings of, you know, if we're having people look out for how comfortable or uncomfortable something is on a scale and marking those kinds of things down. So a lot of field studies that move into a little bit more experimental testing to elicit particular responses. And then I have done a lot of just street observation. I like to do that again, both mobily. So where I may be driving with other researchers, where we are either driving or, you know, people do it on bicycles. That's a little hard, but it's been done. You know, recording where the focus is or the interest is what are other people doing and trying to sort of take in and understand that. But then a lot more also stable, like just planting myself at corners with video recorders. I've used intercept interviews to get feedback on that works for pedestrians. It's not great. I haven't found it to be an incredibly viable method, but it can be used in some places where you stop people after crossings to ask them questions about. So you're taking a real instance and they didn't consider themselves a research subject until you ask permission and see if they'll participate and spend 10 minutes talking with you. But, you know, I've done things like that. I've worked in simulation. Again, it's not necessarily what I would initiate, but I like it when I have a chance to work with others. Then we can design particular controlled kinds of scenarios that we have people to sort of run through different tests. 
and a lot of video analysis of the kind of real world instances of what have been observed. Probably haven't done a ton of, but have been useful on occasion would be more diary studies or where we do recruit participants. We have them maybe on their own time engage in the world, whether as participants by taking walks with a video camera, doing a think aloud or as drivers. And then I've been a part of studies where we'll use, you know, one set of participants data to review with a different set of people to have them talk through, you know, we log and do some analysis and then, you know, use those real world scenarios with a new set of participants through a video to get their feedback on certain sorts of occasions. For me, tending more towards naturalistic, and I often work with more quantitative, you know, researchers who might be more survey focused, or more objective analysis of video rather than this objective input meaning construction, but more looking at behavioral counting of instances of things and stuff. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And that's really interesting. And I really appreciate your perspective on that. We're getting right up to time here. So I like to kind of close out with a couple questions. One of those questions is, if you could have lunch with anyone in the automotive industry, who would that be? Automotive or mobility broadly? Let's broaden it a little bit. That's a great question. And I maybe a little bit drawing a blank of who am I most curious by. But I will say... Well, I'm going to give you two quick answers. One is I actually have reignited, and I think that there's good reason to be paying more attention again to some of the autonomous shuttle providers. So the folks at May Mobility, for example, who I think have been, you know, they've had a consistent or persistent set of pilots and things that they've run. They're more integrated now into systems. And I think that, you know, and I've interacted only briefly on a few occasions with some of those. But I think, you know, given the longevity and the sort of shuttle model as, I hope this isn't the wrong way of putting it, but almost a kind of more modest effort to approach this, I would love to learn from them, you know, where they're at now, where they see the opportunities, what they've learned about, you know, what's gone well and what hasn't. So a leader from Mabelability, I'll name as one. And then I... Though, as as I contest earlier, I don't start with the technology myself. I don't think, oh, cool, new technology, what can be done with it? I tend to like say what is happening. But I think there's been some very creative, there are still these various instances of new forms of mobility. So, for example, there's a small firm out here called Glidewells, sorry, Glideways, which is individual pod-based autonomous systems. And the particular model that they have and the design for how it should integrate with in cities or campuses or whatever, very sort of environmentally sustainable consciousness behind it and reusable kind of technology. So that would be the second. So I think, you know, looking at some of these alternative format mobility services is what I would say. Yeah, that's really interesting response. I also follow some of the work they do at May Mobility as well. I think they do some interesting work. And finally, just to wrap up, given your broad expertise in this and other areas, are there any suggestions you would make about potential aspects of autonomous vehicles that really have been underexplored? 
you know, some considerations of autonomous vehicles that haven't really been heavily considered up to this point. I know just to give you a for instance of what I'm referring to, one thing that I have thought quite a lot about is what are the implications for civil liberties in autonomous vehicles when vehicles no longer have steering wheels and people can't manually make them go places, right? And we have these autonomous systems that you're really dependent upon to actually truly take you where you want to go, right? And if it doesn't take you, then how are you going to get there, right? You can't make it take you there. So what are some of the, or maybe one or two areas that you think have been underexplored or maybe ripe for exploration given the rapid evolution of the technology? I mean, boy, am I tempted to piggyback on what you've just said, because I think that is such a a vital one. I think it's a civil liberties. It's also a safety. I know Alex Roy years ago, Alex Roy of Automicast and a notable person in the field said years ago, told the story or would bring up questions about you're trying to, everybody needs to escape Southern Florida for a hurricane all of a sudden. And we're relying on These are like political economy questions more about who are the operators of these vehicles and where are they telling them that they can go. So to your point about no steering wheel, if you are the controller behind, it's your personal vehicle and you have some ability to sort of control it somewhat, it's different than if you're relying on a business that's actually deciding in control of what roads can it travel on and what can't it and all that. So I think there's multiple layers to that. It's not that it hasn't been explored. It continually comes up. But I have long remained concerned and interested in the shifting labor dimensions to having more autonomous systems. So I think that the threat to labor is real. I do think it's, as you know, like, for example, in trucking, you know, the labor shortage problem is the opposite. There's not enough drivers. But there's a reason. They're not great jobs in some ways. They have been historically. It's been a great middle class sort of occupation. But it's it's hard on people in a lot of ways. But, you know, the time could come where all that shifts and the jobs that have been available in driving professions do go away more. But yes, automation always brings new jobs and new work. But I do think we need to really keep our eye on what some economists say, which is the kind of work that's being created. If you think about the back, you know, what's at the back end of all these systems with machine learning and all, the kinds of work are often not the most advanced kinds of work. So we're seeing more bifurcation. There's the really, you know, complicated, complex professional jobs on one end, and then increasing numbers of data janitorial style work that get created. So I do think, again, it's not something that hasn't had attention, but I think it continues to deserve more attention. Well, thank you greatly for participating and being on Designing for Movement. It's been a great privilege to have an opportunity to chat with you. We're right at time. Hopefully the uh, listeners really got a lot out of your really insightful commentary and perspectives on a lot of these issues. And thank you for your time. Well, thank you. And boy, I'm going to be thinking about this last question. And no, I missed a great. (laughs) It's such a good question. And I love your perspective on that. But thank you for the time. I hope it was useful. I enjoyed the conversation a lot. That's all for today's episode for the UX for Mobility podcast. 
Remember to subscribe to our podcast to stay up to date on the latest episodes and feel free to leave us a review to let us know what you think. And a special thanks to our guests for sharing their expertise with us and to our listeners for tuning in. Join me again next time for more exciting discussions on designing for movement, the UX for Mobility podcast.